Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners in America and other places to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend, Liz Feltzer in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you? Hi, Alan. Doing very well. How are you? I'm good. How is this Passover um, week going for you? Anything new and exciting in the world of Pesach and Israel? It is passing over very nicely. Yes, we are um, right in the in the middle of the holiday, and Israel is definitely in holiday mode. You know, Passover is one of those times when both for tourists, which thankfully we are starting to see a little more of here in Israel, and for locals, all of the attractions are open. All the schools are closed for two plus weeks. Um, and so a lot of people traveling within the country, um, museums and every kind of attraction you could think of. Um, so all that, all that good holiday fun is being had. Are you seeing anything new and exciting this season of, of keeping kosher? And I'm always impressed, you know, with Israel that there's always some new creative, product that comes out that meets the requirement of being kosher for Passover, just something you wouldn't have think of. Last week when we talked, you talked about the deep fried hot dog in matzah, wrapped in matzah, which has kind of stayed mm-hmm. with me for a while. I haven't attempted to do that, but um, anything new that you're seeing in the culinary world of Passover? I am a, a few things. So one, just to clarify, those you know, visibly matzah-covered hot dogs is like old school in Israel, right? So that's a, that's already going back many years where I saw those. And now, I guess part of the change and part of the big thing is products that don't look at all Passover-ish, right? Like you would have no idea a hamburger on a bun that looks like a bun, but it's a kosher for Passover bun made with potato flour or some other, you know, um, non-wheat, non-chametz, you know, kind of flour. And and it looks like a bun. Um, it's not as tasty as a regular bun, but it certainly looks like one. And that um, sort of theme and technique is really used across the board. So like um, many restaurants in Israel are not open but a good chunk are serving a kosher for Passover version of all of their normal fare, right? Including pizza and pasta and, and everything else. So, you know, so that's one thing, like more and more restaurants, even bakeries, Roladin, uh, you know, the Roladin bakery from all of those Sufgan Yot that we talked about <laughs> a few months ago, right? And looked at the pictures of all the fancy ones with the chasers and talked about the different ones. The entire bakery is open and everything in it is kosher for Passover. But what kind of and, things is the bakery selling that, that meets the culinary desire of most people to eat something sweet and tasty, uh, but not have it be the you know, standard fare of Passover, not so good pastries. So they really have just about everything. Like you walk in 
And it doesn't look so different than when you walk in during any other week of the year. I mean, I would say the only things that look to be sort of missing, obviously, are breads, right? There are no loaves of bread. And the um, boikasim counter, right? That there really wasn't too much. But the cake um, refrigerators were all full with cheesecakes and layer cakes and everything else. They have tons of cookies, um, macaroons, not like American Passover coconut macaroons, but like a French macaroon, right? Like an almond flour, egg white macaroon. Um, they had, gosh, what else did we see there? I mean, I guess more of the cakes have a lot of nuts, right? Around Passover time, you see more nuts. Um, which is probably to some extent, even just like a throwback and the fact that people feel like it's traditional, but these cakes have all been made with some other kind of Passover acceptable flour. They don't have to put nuts on top. They just do so that people see it and think, oh, this is a Passover cake. Um, but they have everything. So I'm, you're making me think about all these different options that somebody has. If you have the volume and the investment to be able to mass produce so many great Passover or kosher sensitive Passover foods, because if you have the marketplace for it, you can do whatever you want to do. So the, the short question is, so is it much more expensive than walking into the bakery, not during Passover? I am. It's a little bit more expensive. I mean, Olivin is not cheap ever, right? Let's start with that. It's it's one of the more expensive bakeries. Um, and it's even, you know, more expensive on, on Passover. Um, look, it depends who you ask, right? Like some people would say, oh my goodness, I'm never going to pay, you know, 60 shekels for... Uh, a loaf cake. I am, um, and somebody else would say, what, for a kosher for Passover a loaf cake that looks beautiful and probably also tastes pretty good, that's a great deal. Um, so, and it also depends, you know, how much time and inclination you have to bake yourself. I know my skill set, and I'm <laughs> better off buying the expensive cake than trying to bake one. But the but other people may decide differently. So does it feel as though the holiday of Passover really isn't being, um, I wouldn't say recognized, but when you can have substitute things that remind you that it's not Passover, does that take away any of the the feeling or spiritual nature of Passover? If you can walk into a bakery and and get a cookie. So I do not find that it takes anything away. I mean. It's still very obvious, like the fact that there's signs all over the bakery saying, you know, kosher for Passover, kosher le Pesach. And there's, because it's Israel, most of the bakery is kosher Passover with kidneyot, right? Including legumes. And then there's a small section of kidneyot-free, um, right? That just sort of follows the percentages, like you're saying, right? What you have a market for. Um, and, um, you know, it's a different feel. It's, it's much less of a deprivation feeling, but it's definitely different, right? Like if we want a holiday where people ask the question, you know, 
manishtana. Why is this different than other reasons of year? It definitely feels different. You know, you still see we were we were out today. We were at a country club pool. I am since so the kids are on vacation, and just like in the states, I mean, you see people sitting out with their box of matzah. Now, when you see that in the states, I am maybe it's a little more unusual and you sort of wonder like, is this okay? I actually have been at the Omaha Zoo and whipped out my box of matzah, but maybe people don't do that in too many places. Here, you know, obviously totally normal. Everybody knows that it's Passover and nobody thinks it's weird. And the people that you see whipping out their box of matzah are people who don't, you know, look particularly religious necessarily because it's everybody. Right, Passover is a widely observed holiday in Israel, and um, and nobody, I don't think, even if they would go home and eat a regular bread sandwich, they would not take a sandwich and sit out in a public, yeah. you know, bench or park or or anything like that. So, um, so the the feeling of Passover is absolutely there, and I don't think. You know, that you can get so many things now takes anything away from it. It lets us all tell stories, you know, just like the, you know, oh, I used to walk to school in barefoot in the snow, both ways uphill for 10 miles. You know, we can say to the kids, you know, when we were kids, and actually Yonatan told the kids this, he said, you know, when we were kids, do you know what cereal was on Passover? It was matzah that you broke up into little pieces. And if you were lucky, you added some sugar to it. And that was cereal. Now, of course, we have multiple kinds of kosher for Passover cereal, um, including like kid-friendly chocolate-filled, you know, all kind of things. So it, get, it lets you be nostalgic, but I think it's a good thing to have more options. So being that I'm currently in the, the desert of California, the a variety of foods available are limited. And I'm traveling this coming Thursday and I'm packing, I'm preparing to pack my Passover meals for, for myself. And it's very, very limited. Uh, and it does take me back to the early days in America where Passover foods were, you know, very, very minimal. But yet you want to adhere to the best of your ability, the, the cash root of Passover. So I want to ask you another question. You, We've talked about the difference between um, kidney oat, you know, the, the stuff that um, Sephardic culture is used. That's okay. Are you seeing more and more people uh, leaning towards that culinary experience versus sticking to the Ashkenazi rigid experience? In Israel, for sure. I mean, I think I am. Um, yes. You know, I can't speak to what it's like in ultra Orthodox circles. And I assume that they're, and even in those communities, right? What when I tell you that I see in the supermarket and what I see in the bakery is that the vast majority of items are include kidney oat and there's a small section for non-kidney oat. I assume that in other neighborhoods it's it's the opposite, right? If you go to an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood where most of the people are Ashkenazi, then yes, probably you can find an entire supermarket that's kidney free. I don't know, I haven't been in one, but my guess is that it exists. I am, um, but outside of those communities in like more mainstream, let's say, religious Israeli society, I would say that there is a definite shift. I am um, every year it seems like you hear about another family 
neighbor uh, that they decided, no, that's it this year. They're doing kidney oats. They're not going to worry about it anymore. So I definitely see that trend. Um, And I think to a certain extent it exists in the States as well. I mean, I believe that in 2016, the um, rabbinical assembly of the conservative movement in the States officially announced that kidney oats were all kosher for Passover and that people should no longer, you know, consider them not kosher Passover because it artificially, you know, separates people and creates a division where we don't need one. Now, obviously, traditions are hard to let go. And somebody who their whole life has said, well, of course, I'm not going to eat corn on Passover isn't suddenly going to start eating it unless you're, I don't know, super motivated. But but I do think it's a trend in that direction. Uh, it's interesting you should say that because I do remember the memo from the conservative mm-hmm. movement that it's OK. I still, you know, have diff- difficulty doing that. Um, but it became a conversation in our household this year around, um, you know, is it OK to use corn tortillas if you're following that uh, philosophy. So thank, mm-hmm. thank you for saying um, that at least the conservative movement uh, approves of corn tortillas. Um, I, again, we're not going to advocate uh, one way or the other on that, but it, it again goes to the idea that people are becoming much more comfortable with certain guidelines being addressed and evaluated. And I, I think that's that's part of what progressive Judaism is about. You don't have to adhere to it. You could stick to the old traditional pieces, or you could uh, find ways to become more. Yeah. And uh, one of the nice things about this sort of super internal esoteric Jewish debate of do we eat kidney oat or not, but one of the nice things about it is that um, there is no disagreement about the fact that even if one does not eat kidney oat, um, they are definitely not chametz. And there's no issue with them, let's say, in terms of cooking equipment or serving dishes, right? So if, you know, a family, it is their tradition to eat kidney oat and they want to host another family that doesn't eat kidney oat, there's no issue with those dishes, right? Those kosher Passover dishes. So you say, okay, this, this, the Schwartzes are coming over and they don't eat kidney oat. So tonight we're going to cook things that aren't kidney oat. But the fact that on other days of the holiday you do is totally not an issue. So it's nice in that sense. So thank you for clarifying that. The, that clarifies the issue that you're not creating a trafe environment or not mm-hmm. an environment for people. I, I love sticking to the theme of food and Passover. Um, you mentioned to me the other day a, a TV show that appeared um, in Israel or popped up on your um, social media feed, a recipe for change. Um, what 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 brought you to that? And and let's talk a little bit about that. And I'll include the series in our notes. But recipe for change sounds like. Uh, a culinary experience. I am. It is a culinary experience. So first of all, I, as far as I know, there is no like Israeli audience or awareness of this show. The fact that it popped up on my social media feeds is not because I'm here in Israel. It's, you know, just, I don't know. I like something that somebody liked that had something. I have no idea, but I don't think it has anything to do with Israel. I am, but this, and I wasn't aware of this series before, even though I guess it started almost a year ago. I am. Right. In in my research of it, there was, the initial one was Recipe for Change. 
dealing with um, Asian Pacific Islander hate crimes that took place. So when you mentioned right. it to me, that's what I saw first, not the one that you recommended. Right. So so that one that was done last year, I um, created this format of having individuals, mostly celebrities and artists and also chefs, right, from a particular minority group, sit down together uh, over a meal. And while they're enjoying the food, but also talking about how they see different issues of prejudice and violence against their particular group. So I wasn't aware of the Asian one when it uh, happened a year ago. But when this brand new episode that was just released uh, a couple of days ago, which is about Jews, um, was released. Surprise, surprise. That was more in my <laughs> social circles and came up in my feet. And it kept that format, right, of having these dinners um, with a chef and um, the Jewish participants around the table having a conversation about, in this case, anti-Semitism and how it has or has not played out in their lives and their careers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I, I think that people should definitely watch it. I now also want to go and watch the Asian one. I'm super interested to see it. Um, what I look, I, I mean, I think people and, and myself included will hear things said that they do or don't agree with. Right. And that's fine. You're hearing a lot of different people's views and you don't need to agree with everybody. I am. Um, but the fact that they, that these individuals all sat down at a table together, actually three different tables, but that's, you'll see when you see the show. I am. Um, and could have conversations um, even though they hold very different views, I think is in some ways uniquely American. And it is one of the most wonderful, in my opinion, aspects of American Judaism because it, it doesn't work that way in Israel. Unfortunately, um, we we have real struggles in Israel with being able to sit down and have civil conversations with other Jews who are very different from us, uh, religiously or politically or culturally or socioeconomic status or what have you. Um, it doesn't it doesn't work in the same way. And to see it done, um, again, in my opinion, like really beautifully for people to be able to share and listen to each other. Um, and these are very diverse groups of Jews, right? They've clearly specifically chosen to have people, uh, Jews of color and um, Jews across the uh, gender identity spectrum. And um, I don't think it was specifically mentioned whether anyone was a Jew by choice, but my guess is that, you know, that was something that they also thought to include. Uh, and people that have no connection to Israel and people that have strong connections to Israel. I mean, it was quite broad. Was, um, was there a representation yeah. of the different concurrent movements of Judaism or did it appear to be much more of a loosely um, connected, liberal-minded Jewish environment? I would say it was more loosely connected, liberal-minded. There were some 
quite a lot of references to Abraham Joshua Heschel, which I always think of as yay conservative movement. Just, you know, I know how he, I mean, he's a philosopher and theologian who's read sort of across the board, but clearly he, you know, he himself felt at home within the Jewish Theological Seminary. And that was, you know, where, where he taught. Um, uh, there, there was not anybody who represented a very, you know, religious bent. I don't even know if, I mean, certain aspects of the meals clearly were not kosher, right? I don't think these foods were strictly kosher at all. So that already makes you say, okay, a certain segment, you know, of the Jewish population isn't going to be able to partake. Um, uh, so yes, it did not run the entire spectrum of, of Jewish observance, but I still think that it says something about people being able to come together and, and have these important conversations. What I'm very interested to know is who will watch this show, right? Will, will any, will religious people, Jews watch this show? Will non-Jews watch this show? How will they get to it? Will they find it? What will they think of it? Um, well, we will at least uh, promote it within our small cadre of people that listen to our podcast. <laughs> I mean, I really, I would like, I think that to hear what people are thinking and feeling and the, like, I think it's really important. Um, and it gives you a sense of what is the sort of tenor of where, what other Jews are feeling in terms of anti-Semitism. Um, and you also see like how, how broad that is, right? There are people who said, well, I, you know, I heard that it's like out there, but I've never actually experienced anti-Semitism and people for whom it is, hits much closer to home. Um, and, and that's an important conversation to have because where you live in the United States can have a very big impact on, you know, how much anti-Semitism you think is out there and how it feels to you. And so to communicate with people who have a different experience is critical. So I'll, I'll just share with you that I received this morning uh, an email from a colleague of mine who learned that in Beverly Hills, many of the homes were flyered with uh, anti-Semitic flyers, papered or pampered. Uh, and so again, even though we're more exposed to uh, anti-Semitism through graffiti, through flyers, it's a very different um, exposure, different type of hate than what some other people experience, but it's been around for a long time. And I think, you know, one of the things you and I talked about is I look at Passover as an opportunity to educate around Judaism and to teach people the value of history and why Jews have been uh, the target of anti-Semitism for years. Um, and yet the story is of us fleeing Egypt because we were persecuted and enslaved in Egypt. I mean, I, I think that, you know, things just don't change. Uh, but the level of of anti-Semitism and such does change. Um, yes, I mean, there's certainly a connection between Passover and the themes of anti-Semitism in general. Um, and I think the, you know, the fact that things change is part of why a conversation like this is very important, right? Because, um, 
because we need to remind ourselves of what things were like at other times. And I am to, to, to be aware and prepared in a sense. Um, and also I think the other connection between um, this series and Passover is the fact that, you know, Passover not only has the theme of the Jewish people having left persecution, but the idea of, uh, of slavery as the ultimate evil, whomever it's impacting, right? And this idea that, that we as Jews are meant to recognize and see when any group is being um, persecuted and treated unfairly. And so the fact that this series is part of a larger look at how, you know, different minority groups are experiencing hatred, it also ties into Passover. Wow, very nice way of feeding that all together. I like that. That was really very good. Uh, Taking my stream of of consciousness and focusing it very clearly. Uh, Liz, any other things that uh, on your mind you want to share today? I am wishing everybody a very happy Passover with or without your kidney oat. And, <laughs> and um, yeah. That's good. I will share with you that I found a new study that came out uh, last week. It's called the Jewish Electorate Institute National Survey of Jewish Voters. We've talked about this once before mm-hmm. every year. I will send you a copy of it. And maybe we can talk about it next time we're together. Um, for those who are listening uh, this week, uh, I'm going to be gone for a week. Uh, I'm going to be going to Cuba, and I'll be meeting with some of the folks in the Jewish community there. Maybe I'll do a, a, a raw uh, podcast from Cuba. But other yes, than that, we want to hear from you in Cuba. But other than that, Liz, you and I will get together again soon. Uh, enjoy the rest of the holiday with your family and continue to explore new trends in Passover food. (laughs) I will keep eating Passover food. You got it. Okay. Uh, You've been listening to Israel Rebound, a podcast, bringing ideas uh, and people together from across the globe. Liz, have a great rest of the week. Thanks, Alan. See you.